And then like most people do, you're like, okay, I want to invest in out of state. It's super intimidating to think about like, am I really going to own property in a different state where I can't go see it? Like I talked to my dad about it, who's a real estate investor. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Like I was living on a different planet. He's like, there's no way in hell I would ever do something like that. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. First, let's check in with my co-host, Cody. What's going on, man? Nothing too much, Justin. I got back. I went skiing with my girlfriend, Lauren, on Friday, went out for a friend's birthday, got some hibachi, which was really yummy, on Saturday, did some just hanging out, got some house tours done Sunday, and now we're back to the grind. How about you, man? This past weekend, we took it a little easier than normal. We had been skiing like every weekend, but instead, Saturday, we took the day off and did not go skiing. We're kind of lazy and then just ended up going to a House of Blues concert. And then that Sunday, we worked out a little too much, ran nine miles, and then did like a pretty intense workout class. But we're trying to get ready for this half marathon length Spartan race that we're doing in March. But that's enough about us. So let's take a quick pause for our sponsors before we jump into the episode. One of the best ways to protect your family is with term life insurance. Even though we don't like to think about it, it's important to have financial protection in case the unexpected happens. Bestow is an awesome and reputable life insurance partner of ours that makes this process simple and easy. They use data to remove doctor visits and paperwork involved with the traditional life insurance process. And you can apply from anywhere in just minutes. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops to determine your eligibility. You'll receive an approval response right away. It literally took me less than one minute to get my estimated quote, and you can go do the same. Get your free and convenient quote by visiting thefyshow.com slash bestow. That's thefyshow.com slash bestow. B-E-S-T-O-W. Bestow. Life insurance made easy. And so on today's episode, we bring on Emil Shore from Roostock. This is a guy who takes the initiative, who's not afraid of taking on new opportunities. He has worked for several different startups. And he tells us exactly how you can shine in the startup world and also how you can invest in real estate from places that are thousands of miles from your home. But I want to take away the whole episode. Take it away, Emil. You know, I grew up pretty frugal parents, so I think it was instilled in me pretty early on to like manage my money, save money, be smart with my money. I think for me, it was it, like the, the moment I remember the most early on was actually like investing and when I was, I think, early high school, my dad had like a couple thousand dollars in like an index fund set aside for me for college or for something. And I was super interested in investing, want to get like my hands dirty. So like I took over that account and started investing in, I picked my own stocks. I was investing in like individual instead of, you know, no one wants to do the boring index fund stuff, which is funny because now all this time later, I'm like, man, just make it boring, set it and forget it so much better. Like, you're trying to time the market, try to pick stocks individually, like you're just setting yourself up for failure. So, so for me, it was like early on investing, like something I became super interested in. And that was kind of like my foray into investing early on. And what was that dynamic like as you take over that account with your dad? I mean, is he sitting there kind of helping train you up or are you just, you know, getting a hold of books and doing what you can? You know, I had a friend who he was like a prodigy in high school. He was managing like couple hundred thousand dollars for his family and friends and he was like really really good at stock picking and so like I kind of just piggybacked off him I was super lucky to just have a smart friend and kind of just learn through osmosis 
So for me, it was just like, like you know, mentoring or, or just learning from people who are, who are way better than me. That was kind of my foray. So it sounds like this started and you had quite a passion for investing. Did that kind of hold true throughout high school and college? What did you study? What was your first job? Could you just kind of walk us through those years? Yeah. So for me, it was like I went to, I, I started investing for a couple of years. I got super lucky. Like I'm not going to say I was anything special. I got super lucky, made some money, ended up needing a car for college. So sold my stocks and bought myself a car. And then, you know, broke college kid, didn't really have any money to invest. So sat on the sidelines for investing. And then it was, it was like a couple years after college, I got back into it, you know, started a job, started earning some money, and then I had some money to play around with. And so, like for me, that, that, that was kind of when I, when I hopped back in, it was a couple years after college. Well, so as far as college goes, what did you see yourself being? What was your major? Like, what were your ambitions? And was there any tie back to finance or investing for that major? Yeah, so I was an economics major. So my college, I went to UCSD for undergrad, and they didn't have a business major. So I took the thing that I thought was the closest, which is economics. And I think, you know, economics, you, you study finance a little bit, but not really. It's not like a great education in terms of like finance and investing. Yeah, so after college, I got a job as a research analyst, basically collecting a lot of information. And we ran a website that researched the the development of pharmaceuticals. So as drugs were being developed, like we would monitor where they were at. Like when they get test results, we would compile it for every single drug so that investors could tell like when a new drug was going to come out, like let's say for, for cancer, right? Like if a new company launches a new cancer drug, it's approved and it moves into development, there's a like huge impact to the stock. So it was like a lot of investors subscribe to our site to get intelligence on these pharmaceuticals that are being developed. And other pharmaceutical companies use this as like research on their competitors to see where they're at with clinical development. So anyway, that for me, that was kind of just like a random job, a couple years and left that my professional life, I don't think has like really landed too much in terms of my investing in personal finance. I mean, I left that job, moved back to LA, and I started at a, at a small startup. I think working at startups kind of teaches you a lot about like, you get your hands dirty in the finances of a company because you're doing so many things. So I think it teaches you a little bit about like, how do I manage this for myself personally? So I think it lends itself a little bit in that way. So when I was doing some digging, I did notice that you worked on a lot of these like startup-y type companies. I think that's an interesting avenue we can just dive down quickly for people who are thinking about, you know, they're stuck in that corporate role. They're not learning. They're not growing. What kind of skills and other talents or tactics or just things have you developed from working in this startup type environment? Yeah, I think working at a startup, you have to be like a self-starter. You have to you have to just be ambitious, right? Like you're not given the playbook on how to do something. You have to create it. And I think that that really lends itself well to personal finance and investing, right? Like, yes, you can give your money to somebody and they can handle it. But like the people who do the best with their their finances, their investing, all that, it's like your self-starter. You're interested in like learning a lot of stuff, right? You roll your sleeves up. You're like, I need to take charge here. No one's going to come in and take charge for me. I'm not going to be given the playbook on how to do this for myself. And for those listening, if, especially if some of them are thinking about maybe trying to find themselves a job at a startup type company, you know, I can imagine sometimes they're looking at these companies, it's something they've never heard of, and they kind of don't feel like they can trust, you know, they don't know, is this like a legit company? Or are they just going to kind of pay me nothing, giving me, 
you know, equity in this company that's never going to exist and just kind of burn me out? Like, did you have any, or do you have any advice for those people as far as vetting one of these uh, startup companies before they decide to go and actually, you know, sign a contract with them and work for them? Yeah, totally. So most startups, you're going to get paid crap, right? But the trade-off is that you're going to learn a lot. That's going to, you know, it's like in your, I don't know, I've seen it around LinkedIn and stuff. People say like, learn in your 20s, earn in your 30s. And it's, I think it's really true, especially if you work in startups. It's like, you're going to go, you kind of have to know, like, you're going to get underpaid. You could go work at a big company, but you're not going to get, to me at least, you're not going to get that same experience that you get at a startup. And the way I chose companies that I liked, and you know, I've worked at a couple startups and you just get better at this with, over time, it's you're really trusting the founders and the leadership team. Like you have to meet them and feel good about them. And I would recommend, honestly, like if you can go work at a startup where the founders have had previous success, that is huge. Like if you've been a successful founder, I forget the stat, but like successful founders are so much more likely to go on and have another startup that's successful versus like a first time founder, much less likely to succeed. So I think if you're going to a startup and you're looking at a couple, if you can find founders and leadership team that have that have done something successfully, either like sold the company or IPO or whatever, whatever their success metric was, if you can find that, I think that's one of the things I look for the most. And it's, you know, it's like working with people you want to work with, right? Like I think people don't like corporate jobs because you know, their manager is a jerk and everyone, it's like just stuffy, right? So it's like, I don't know, talk to as many people as you can within the company and just do you gel with those people? Because at startups, you spend a lot of time with those people, you work longer hours, like you better like enjoy those people <laughs> that you're working with. On a more tactical level, as someone who is a marketing expert, I know you kind of specialize in marketing and growth. How integral has networking played in your role to, you know, joining all these different startups? And for someone who doesn't know how to network at all, could you maybe talk about a little bit your networking playbook? Like, how do you hit these people up? What do the conversations look like? How often are you following up? That type of stuff. Yeah, I think as you progress in your career, your network becomes more and more valuable. Where I'm currently working, Roofstock, it wasn't like me applying for it. It was, I know the CMO of the company, like before I came on and the opportunity came up and it made sense for me to hop on. The way you can grow your network. So I actually picked this up from another marketing guy I know. He liked to set up calls with people once a week and looking for people, you know, scouring LinkedIn or reading articles from like, you know, marketers love to write and create content. It's like what marketers do, right? And they market to other marketers, which is kind of like inception for marketers. But anyway, <laughs> he would like go find, you know, like he was director of marketing. So he would go find companies that are similar in size and scale to him and like reach out to the director of marketing and just say, hey, man, would love like saw your director of marketing at so and so would love to set up a call and just like learn more about you, see how we can help each other, whatever. And most of the time, most people like everyone knows networking and leveraging relationships is super important. So most of the time, again, if you, if I, if I go to like the, the CMO at like a public company, they're probably not going to give me the time of day. You have to choose a company that's like similar in size and scale to you and position that's similar to you. Most of the time, those people are going to be super eager to like chat with you, grow their network. Like those people are going to be open to it as well. So that was one thing I picked up that was actually really, really helpful in terms of networking. The other thing I would say right now, as, as of this recording, I don't know, you know, down the line, it might change, but like LinkedIn is, LinkedIn is giving a lot of people organic reach. So 
you know, if you're creating content on LinkedIn, that's a super easy way to grow your network and, and your social following. Some of the other platforms have like deprioritized organic, like you got to pay to play, but LinkedIn is still favoring a lot of content creators and you get a ton of organic reach there. So that's another good way to like scale yourself without the, the one-on-one. So during that answer, you know, you mentioned Roofstock, you mentioned the company that you're working for now. And so as we're continuing to talk about networking, what was it, what kind of connection that was it that led you to picking a company like Roofstock and what was it that enticed you to work there? Yeah. So my story is a little bit unique in that before I ever got in touch with anyone about working at Roofstock, I was actually a customer of Roofstock back in 2017. And so I had bought a couple properties to them, became a huge, huge fan of the company and like what it had done for me personally in my investing. And there was a position that opened up and I reached out to the CMO and at the time it didn't make sense, but we stayed in touch, right? They're based in Oakland. I'm based in Los Angeles and we weren't ready for remote work at the time. So it wasn't, wasn't a good fit at the time, but just stayed in touch. Like I would get, you know, when, when you own real estate, a lot of people send you mail to buy your property, like other real estate investors trying to buy your property from you. And so like I would take pictures of it and send it to the CMO and be like, hey, this is like really smart. You guys should use it for your marketing as well. So like just using little ways to like stay in touch. And then when a role opened up and, you know, they were more open to, to having me come on, he reached out. Timing was right for both of us. And, and that's how I started working at Roofstock. So house prices are not cheap in California. How did you start investing? And was 2017 with Roofstock your first real estate investment? Yeah, yeah. That was my that was my first property ever. So my story is my dad has been a real estate investor for a little over a decade. I live in Los Angeles where, yeah, like you said, real estate prices are insane. And so, you know, I was saving up, saving up, wanted to invest in something. But the more I looked around, I was like, man, I can buy maybe a shed and it's not going to like, like, I can't afford anything here and my returns are going to be poor. And so, you know, I was, I was reading a lot online, listening to other podcasts about real estate investing. And I heard somebody talk about out of state investing. I think they, they lived in DC and they were investing in, in Florida. I forget where, maybe it was Jacksonville or Orlando or something. And I was blown away. Like, she was buying homes in the 100 to 150K range. So, you know, down payment was 20, 30 grand, which was much more doable for me. And she's explaining her whole story of how she does it and manages them. And it was like the light bulb just went off. I was like, okay, I knew I wanted to invest in real estate. And that was like the aha moment for me. And then like most people do, you're like, okay, I want to invest in out of state. It's super intimidating to think about like, am I really going to own property in a different state where I can't go see it? Like I talked to my dad about it, who was a real estate investor, and he looked at me like I was crazy, like I was living on a different planet. He's like, there's no way in hell I would ever do something like that. But I don't know, I'm stubborn. I was like, I'm going to figure out a way how to do this. And so I'm thinking about it, I'm like, man, I got to go build a team, I got to go find a real estate agent, do all this stuff on my own. And I was listening to a different podcast and Roofstock came up, right? It was like pretty new at the time and they were mentioning Roofstock and how you can buy properties out of state. And they do a lot of the due diligence ahead of time. You get the inspection report ahead of time. You can see like the repairs. They have a couple property management partners that they, they recommend. You don't have to use them, but it was like it was like the river guide. They help you get into an investment property and they vet all these properties out of state, certify them, back them with money back guarantees and rent guarantees. So it was like, okay, I know I want to do this. I would like a little bit of a safety net, especially on this first one to make it a little easier especially like getting my feet wet, don't know a ton about real estate. 
And so that was when I decided to buy my first property. And that was in 2017, like you mentioned. Since then, I've actually bought three more. So I'm up to four properties. They're actually spread out all across the U.S. Jacksonville, Memphis, St. Louis, and Indianapolis are the different cities that I'm invested in right now. And so like, yeah, I'd say real estate investing has been like that light bulb moment for me. And it's made me living, you know, someone living in a city like Los Angeles, where even, even if you can afford it, the returns, like your cash on cash, your cap rate returns, which is how most people are looking at real estate investing. Those are the metrics we all look at. They're not that good. Out of state, you're usually going to get better returns. The trade-off is, you know, it's a little bit more anxiety-inducing to think like, <laughs> I'm not there. But at the same time, it also it also forces you to think about it more like a business rather than like, now I'm a landlord, I'm handling calls at 2 a.m. about broken pipes or whatever. It's like you learn to leverage your property manager and really treat it like a business. I almost just look at myself like, I'm the bank and how do I manage my my fund and my assets, right? Instead of, I'm a landlord, I want to get my hands dirty. I'm not handy, like, it doesn't work for me, so... Could we, so we have a super number crunchy community here with the five show financial independence. People are retiring early and figuring out withdrawal strategies. Could we talk about that first property? Just maybe talk about purchase price. We talk about the condition of the property, talk about like cash flow and you know, all those phone numbers. Yeah. I actually is tracking everything like year by year. What's like my total performance. So I'm happy to share the numbers with you guys. Like I can share everything and, and how like my properties have performed. Why don't we take the Jacksonville property? So that's the property I bought back in 2017. So this is a home that I bought for just under $84,000, 20% down payment. And I think my interest rate around the time was four and three quarters. So bought it for, yeah, a little under 84. The rent on it at the time was, I think, like 925 or not. I think it was 900. And now over time, we have it up to 954. And I've had the same tenant in place. You asked about the condition. So it was pretty turnkey. The, the roof had been repaired recently. HVAC had been repaired recently. So not a lot of like big expenses for me to worry about initially. The neighborhood, so on Roofstock, we have what's called a neighborhood rating. We rate it on a one to five star scale. It's like a proprietary rating method where we pull in like crime data, income in the area, how many people are renting versus owning. So all these different factors that our data science team pulls and we have our own score for it. So this one was, I think like a, a two out of five star. So not a, not a great neighborhood, probably like a, a C neighborhood, but like one thing I like to do sometimes, you know, you'll see neighborhoods at a certain rating or whatever, but a lot of times it's like street to street, block to block. It changes a lot. And so what I always recommend to people is call the property manager, right? So again, on Roofstock, we have like two or three, usually two to three, preferred property managers who we recommend. You don't have to use them, but they're people we work with and have good relationships with. Call the property manager and just ask them, say, hey, I'm looking at a property at this address. Like, what do you think? Is it a good neighborhood? And they can usually tell you, you know, the property manager has to manage the property. (laughs) They don't want a headache just as much as you don't want a headache. So they're going to give you their honest feedback of like, no, you shouldn't go in that area. Here's why. Or yeah, this area is good. We have other properties. Like, you know, you can ask them, do you have properties in this area and how long do tenants stay and you know leverage the property manager as much as you can let's get back to the numbers let's see so i've had the same tenant in the almost three years i've owned this property which is the best i mean as a real estate investor you learn that when people leave is when you have the most expenses like you have to get it rent ready again so like i recommend people like if you have to lower your rent to keep your tenant do it 
you want to keep your tenant in as long as you can. So this property hasn't had the tenant leave. Total cash flow is $8,260. So that's after everything. So that's after I've paid my mortgage. Property management is taking out their stuff. I've paid for, you know, fixes along the way. Made $8,260. So that's a 36.7% cash on cash, which has been pretty nice. And then the kicker with real estate that, you know, most people talk, like, I never like to bet on appreciation, but you learn that appreciation is like your best friend in real estate. So this home has appreciated up to, according to Zillow, like up to $110,000. So about 30 grand. So what I'm doing now is interest rates have dropped a bunch. So I'm actually refinancing, lowering my interest rate and also cashing out about 15, 16 grand that I'm going to use to buy another property. So I'm going to use that towards the next purchase. And like, you learn that you like your portfolio is this amazing asset that you can take, like, you know, as it goes up, you can leverage against it. And so you know, you take out a 30 year mortgage, it's not going to affect your cash flow that much. I think I did the math and it's like, it's going to affect my cash flow $70 a month. But now I have six, fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 to go use on the next property, which will probably offset that. And like, you know, the cash flow on the next property, let's say will be 150 or $200. So it's like, it's awesome leverage. And that's one of the things I love the most about real estate. So any other specific metrics that I can talk about? Well, just as compared to if you would have went and done this on your own, I mean, it sounds like you got a ton of help, like being able to find those property managers, get those ratings, just find the house in general. But I'm assuming that by using Roofstock, that has cut into your earnings at some point. Like, how does that pricing model work? Like, what's in it for Roofstock, I guess? Yeah, that's actually one of the most common questions we get is like, okay, this sounds great, but how does Roofstock make money? So, a normal transaction, real estate transaction, about 6% goes between the buyer agent and the seller's agent, right? 3% to each. What we do is we actually take 2.5% from the seller and then a half a percent from the buyer. So it's half a percent or $500 minimum. So for me, when I bought this property, because it's less than $100,000, it's the $500 minimum. So I paid 500 bucks and then the seller paid their 2.5%. So it's a great deal for the seller. They don't have to pay 6% to sell their property. And for me, I only paid $500 to Roofstock. So it's always just on transactions is how Roofstock makes their money. Another question I have is, so Roofstock sets you up with the property managers. How do you go and facilitate the mortgage? Are you using one of their local banks like in that area? Or are you using someone you have connections with or how does that work? Yeah. So Roofstock also like in trying to help our investors, we have a couple of lending partners that we recommend. You can go see them on the website. And if you talk to one of our advisors, they can point you in their direction as well. Again, by no means do you have to use these the lender partners or the property managers. It's just people that we we feel comfortable with. We feel like they will give our customers a great experience. And that's one of the things that we care about the most. So we recommend a couple. I've used both. I've used Roofstock lenders. I've used non-Roofstock lenders, preferred lending partners. So I've done both. It's up to you how you want to do it. And when you're looking at locations, it sounded like maybe you got this Jacksonville idea based on something you're reading, but now you've started investing in multiple cities what was it that took you to these specific cities and how did Roofstock play a part in that? Yeah. So early on, you know, there was a couple things I looked at in terms of market. I mean, the thing that was the most important to me, like I'm a cash flow investor. So I wanted to make sure, you know, is there a good inventory of like cash flowing properties in this market, right? Like if you go on Roofstock, you can sort by state and you can see like which cities have which types of returns or which states have which types of returns. So first I was like, okay, which states have good returns? And then I'm like, okay, of these states, I do a couple of things. I make sure, is it landlord friendly? 
So meaning, you know, in California, for example, someone can squat on your property for six months, not pay rent, like you have no recourse on them, right? So as a landlord, it's you're put in a tough situation. So one thing I looked for, again, that comes from experience from my dad being an investor here. So one of the things I looked for was, is it a landlord friendly state? Again, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to like kick people out quickly. Like if, you know, hard times happen to everybody, I've had it happen to one of my tenants and worked with them to get through it, like set up payment plans or whatever. But it's good to know that like legally you have some recourse if someone, I don't know, is just doing things on your property where it's not what you want, right? So just having some legal recourse, like you can just even Google landlord friendly states. It's always helpful. Yeah, you know, Roofstock, we make a lot of information available on like, you know, what's so good about Jacksonville. So, you know, the main things you want to look for is, is the economy growing? Is the population growing? Like, are there an influx of people coming or are they leaving, right? So that's one indication of like job growth. Is there a lot of investment coming into the city? So there's, there's just all this information you can look for once you've kind of narrowed down a couple markets that'll just help you figure out like, okay, I like Jacksonville or I like Indianapolis. And so then now it's like, I'm looking for a good property within a couple of cities. I'm not like, I have to invest in Jacksonville. Again, I'm a remote investor. I want to go find where the returns make the most sense. I'm not just investing in my backyard. So one of the things I'd worry about investing in something long-term is, and obviously you can answer this because you work there, but how drastically does the condition of the properties vary? And then how do you go about handling contractors? Because I'd be so worried to get like $50,000 of work done in a state where the contractor could just easily screw me over and overcharge me or not do the job right. And yeah, so hopefully you can speak to that and shed some light on it. Yeah, so if you're going through Roofstock, right, you decide to buy a property through Roofstock, every property on there we have a, or most properties we have a, an inspection report. So you can actually see like a third party inspector went through, estimated like what are the immediate repairs that need to happen and estimate a cost for you. So let's say you, you know walking into the property it's going to be $3,000. So usually what you can do is your property manager usually has someone intern, like they have a contractor, they have someone who does repairs like this, right? They manage a lot of properties. They need relationships with general contractors. And so what you can do is you can have them do it. You can ask them to bid, like, I want you to bid it out between three general contractors and line item it out. And you can just like compare them and say, okay, which one's the best, right? So you don't have to take their first recommendation. I've done that a couple of times and it's helped me save money. Like they'll get a quote and I'm like, go out and get another one. It was like a tree trimming that we needed to do because the, the tree was super long in the backyard, kind of hanging over the house. And it was like literally with, with one request, they saved me $200. So it's like, I always tell people definitely like push your property manager to get multiple bids for you. The other thing with a lot of roofstock properties, because most people are looking for passive investments, not like fixer uppers, most of our properties aren't going to have like an excessive amount of work that need to be done. That goes into like our certification. Like we're making sure that these are properties that we know our investors want to invest in, which is typically going to be less of the fixer up, closer to that turnkey that people want. Earlier in the episode, you mentioned a couple different guarantees associated with Roofstock. Could you just talk through what those are and exactly the rules behind them? Yeah. So uh, we have a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied, like let's say, I don't know, something happens after you buy the property, whatever, we have a 30-day money-back guarantee. So let's say two weeks in, you're like, you know what, I want to, I don't want this property anymore. Something happened. Our money-back guarantee works in that we help you sell it back through our marketplace and we don't take anything through it. So you get your full money back. And I think if you don't sell it within 90 days, like we'll just buy the property outright 
pay you for it, so you're getting your money back, and then we'll just keep working to sell the property. So you basically have a 30-day, it's a 30-day money-back guarantee, and then the other one we have is called the rent guarantee. So a lot of properties on Roofstock's marketplace are already leased out, so you're cash flowing day one. That's another thing that people love. It's like you're walking into a property that's already leased out, like the Jacksonville property I mentioned. I don't have to waste any time going and looking for a tenant. With our rent guarantee, it's like after 45 days after you've purchased a property, and let's say you haven't been able to find a tenant, Roofstock will pay you 75% of the estimated market rent. Just another guarantee so you know people aren't left hanging in case you know it takes them a little bit more time to rent out that vacant property. We want to make sure you have like a really good experience. So we're paying 75% of that estimated rent rate. So I'm going to play devil's advocate just for a second in the case where someone's like, you know what, this is fine. Like, screw it. I don't even need a tenant. There must be some stipulation where Roofstock will only hold that like phantom tenant for a certain amount of time, right? Yeah. So it's up to 12 months and okay. it has to be, it has to be in rent ready condition, right? It can't be like your property is distressed and you need a new roof and stuff and you're just hanging out, taking advantage of Roofstock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously we're thinking about that, but yeah, so it's like your home is in rent ready condition. You also have to work with one of our designated preferred property managers. You can't go out and get your own your own property manager. That's a quite an important point to make. So we're working with your property manager to get a tenant in place. We make sure we're we're speeding up that process. I know sometimes you know you have programs come around where it is a good program like this, but maybe the inventory is just kind of small. So every time you know I get excited about a property, I go I'm going to try to get it, and there's like a hundred people fighting over the same property on Roofstock. What is the inventory like? Are there plenty out there for everybody to kind of get in on this, I guess I should say? Yeah, I mean, you know, you'll see that if there's a property that has like a really high cap rate and cap rate's a measurement of your net operating income divided by sale price. So, you know, if you'll you'll see like like 10% plus cap rate homes that don't need a lot of immediate repairs, yeah, they'll go into like a bidding war where like 15 to 20 people are putting an offer in and you know negotiating and going over asking and all that stuff. But there's still plenty of properties. It's just, you know, people have filters set up so that when a certain property type, you know, like when amazing, amazing deals come up, they get a notification immediately and they're going in and submitting offers. So like there are people kind of waiting for the best deals, you know, as our investor base has grown. But there's still like I don't think people should have like the scarcity mindset where like, oh, there's only so many good deals. Like there's still plenty of great properties. You know, with market conditions, it changes a little bit, right? Like, so two years ago, right, when prices weren't as high, you probably would have gotten a better deal than you do now. But on the flip side, rents have also gone up over that time with it. So it's like, people are like, oh, I'll just wait. For me, I'm like, man, your first property, your second property, they're not going to be, especially if you're trying to grow a portfolio, they're not going to make or break your real estate investing. It's like, you use them as dominoes and like, you start learning and get better and better over time. And it's like, sets and reps, reps and sets, I don't know, whatever, whichever one, reps and sets. (laughs) And it's just like, you just get better, you know, it's like with anything else, you get better and better over time. It's not like the first deal you do is going to make or break you as a real estate investor. But it's just kind of like a general snapshot overview. Like what is the scale of Roofstock? You know, a thousand homes in 20 states, 10,000 homes in all 50 states. Like what kind of scale are we talking? Gotcha. So right now I think we probably have around 650 to 700 properties available on the marketplace. I think if you looked a year ago, that number was like three or 400. So like we're constantly bringing more and more inventory to the site. We know that like that's what people care about the most is optionality and having a lot of investments to choose from. So 
I'm hoping we grow that number to a thousand plus, but right now it's like six to 700 investment properties for sale in the marketplace. And do you guys have some kind of incentive program for people who are selling their house? I know obviously it is cheaper. Like you mentioned before, they're paying the two and a half versus the six, but a lot of people don't even know that this option exists. So are you doing anything to incentivize people who want to sell their homes? I mean, part of it is getting the word out, right? It's like, it takes time to build that network effect of a marketplace so that people people know it exists, right? Like early days of Airbnb, no one even knew it. And then just as more people are doing it, a lot of like word of mouth grows and, and all that. The other thing it's like, you know, traditionally a lot of investors and people looking to sell a property, it's really hard to sell a property when you have a tenant in place. Like if you go try to sell it through the traditional channels, you know, you're only like opening it up to a small pool of investors who are okay with the tenant, right? Otherwise you have to like, pay to get the tenant out. You have to wait till the tenant leaves. So that's the other thing we provide. It's like, we want to be the investment marketplace, right? You have a tenant in place. This is a rental property. This is the best way to buy and sell those types of properties. And with this marketplace, people who are out there, you know, getting interested in this, wanting to look at it, is there some kind of, you know, membership process where having to pay to get access to look at this inventory and this marketplace? Or is this something that could go out there and check out right away? No, you can, you can go to our site. You can start browsing properties. Once you start looking at what we call the diligence documents, which is that inspection report I mentioned, the title report, all that stuff, you'll be prompted to just create an account. So, you know, basic stuff, first name, last name, email. And then you can view everything on the site. You can, like I mentioned earlier, save filters. So let's say you're like, all right, when property is under $100,000 that meet this certain cap rate in Florida, send me an email right away. I want to know about those properties. So creating an account allows you to do that as well. And it's free. So it's a, it's a free marketplace. Again, we only make money on transactions. So what types of properties exactly are on Roofstock? It sounds like we've been talking about single family residential. Has it expanded past that? And does the company have any plans to expand past that? Yeah. So right now, you know, early days, it was primarily single family. It still is primarily. Like if you go look at the marketplace, it's primarily single family. What you'll start to notice is we're sprinkling in some small multifamily, so two to four unit buildings. And so what's cool about two to four is you can still get a conventional mortgage on those. Right? Once it becomes five plus units, it becomes a commercial loan and the process is a little bit different. So we stick to, to residential, which is four and under. So we're starting to get more of those and it's actually been cool. Like we've been seeing a lot of demand for those properties. We actually have like a preset filter on the marketplace that allows you to search for just two to four units. And it, it ends up being one of the like most highly clicked on searches on our marketplace. So we know there's demand there and we're slowly and but surely like adding more. So I think with time, you'll start to see more of those as well. But primarily, you'll see single family right now. So it sounds like, you know, you've got a ton of different like options and features going on. And obviously, you don't want to stretch yourself out too thin. But I'm just curious, you know, I know you have like the preferred lenders, but do you also do anything with kind of, you know, those personal lender networks where someone could maybe throw some cash in and get a return back that someone else needed to get that money for another down payment? Yeah. So kind of like micro loans or basically like private lending. Yeah. We, we don't do that. I think it's kind of like what you said. It's stretching ourselves too thin. And there's already, there's already companies and services out there that do it really well. We just want to grow the marketplace and, and be really well known for having an amazing rental property marketplace. Yeah, that's totally fair and probably the smart way to go. <laughs> so you've got these 650, 700 properties that people through Roofstock are trying to buy. But the people who are selling those via Roofstock, have they like signed something, some kind of guarantee to say that they're not going to sell it to someone outside of Roofstock? Or, 
you know, how do those things get segmented to where these are specifically for people who are going to buy it on Roofstock and not just some other random person is going to come in and buy it in front of you? Yeah. So when you sell with Roofstock, we do have, you know, you sign an agreement where it's exclusive with us for a certain period of time. So there is that. Emil, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think this is such a cool thing. I mean, all these different markets, whether it was, you know, Airbnb or Netflix or whatever it is, you always have these disruptors who come in and change the way that we look at this thing that's been the same for decades. And so it looks like Roofstock has come in and really put a lot of power into these investors' hands who maybe, you know, aren't as comfortable going out there and boots on the ground and doing it themselves. They want that supportive network and they just want things to be easy and they want it to be online. Appreciate you coming on. And if people want to get more information from you or about Roofstock or whatever it may be, where's the best place for them to contact you? Yeah, I'm pretty active on like LinkedIn and Twitter. So Emil Shore, E-M-I-L-S-H-O-U-R. You can find me on LinkedIn and then Twitter at Emil Shore. Those are the best places. Awesome, man. And something we like to ask all of our guests is if you could boil down your number one tip for those on the path to financial independence, what would that be? Definitely invest in real estate. (laughs) I could have seen that one coming. (laughs) If you're going to invest in real estate, don't worry about, don't get hung up on, is my first deal the perfect one? It's better to get started and keep going than to make sure you have like everything, everything right on that first one. All right, and Emil, now it's time for the last and final question. This is the wild card question. So this is the one where we don't even know who's going to ask it until right at the end. We certainly don't know what the question is. Are you ready? Ready. (laughs) All righty. So I thought it was just really interesting that you had all these different jobs with these startup companies. And in my head, I always imagine these startup companies just being these kind of, you know, crazy long hours, crazy things going on in workplace. What is just a really out there workplace moment that happened when you're in one of these startup companies? Oh man, out there workplace moment. So one of the first startups I worked for, we franchised healthy vending machine businesses. And so new franchisees every other month, they would come and go through like a boot camp with us to learn how to run their business. And we sold healthy vending machines. And we had this ridiculous thing where someone would dress up in like a full bodysuit alien costume <laughs> and come out and throw like hot Cheetos and like like unhealthy snacks at everybody. And then we would like attack them back with healthy snacks. So that was like <laughs> a ridiculous thing. Uh, and I was that alien for like five of those boot camps, so it was pretty interesting. <laughs> I'm that so was, glad I asked this question. Yeah, now. that was a lot that. better than I expected. <laughs> I told you, I kn- I knew there was a. I'm like, dude, startups are like the most ridiculous places ever. I worked at a, a very interesting one. So, <laughs> well, Emil, thank you again so much for sharing your time with us today. We've definitely learned a lot about Roofstock and your story, and just the power of network and community and taking advantage of a market that's been there, like Justin said, for so long, but now it's just a little bit of a twist on it. So thank you again so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Man, Justin, I just thought this was a super cool episode. This is someone who he obviously had some startup background, but he knew that, hey, this is a company I really want to work for. And he was actually doing business with Roostock in 2017 before he ultimately ended up joining the team in 2019. What do you think about it, man? Yeah, I think it's cool to have somebody who can come in and kind of shine light on a product that we're interested in, but at the same time, have already been a user, have that firsthand experience and be really passionate about it. I know he also was kind enough to break down some tangible numbers. He said he bought his first home in 2017 for $84,000 in Jacksonville. 
it was pretty much turnkey. He used one of the preferred property managers and that it was renting for $900 right away. And today it has already appreciated $26,000 and is renting for $954. So like he gave us all those numbers. And that was as he was not a Roofstock employee. That was someone who was just, you know, found out about the product and was interested in it and was a real user. That's what I really liked about inviting Emil on is was his transparency with the numbers, Justin, because obviously one of our big questions was, okay, if Roofstock is doing all this legwork for you, there must be some kind of cut into the margins. And he kind of guessed just exactly into, this is exactly what I paid for my buyer's fee. It was like $500. The seller pays this 2.5% and he lays out every single number in every single transaction. And he tells us his number one strategy for making it in the startup world or basically any role where you kind of have to fend for yourself a little bit. And this is networking. And I am such a huge proponent of networking. I was so pumped. Emil shared his networking strategy, how he follows up with people, whether it's on LinkedIn, whether it's through email, whether it's keeping contact with someone at a company who might have a position open up for you years later down the road. And him nurturing and garnering those connections and those people in his network ultimately led him to a bunch of incredible opportunities. Yeah, I mean, that networking is what allowed him to get this job at Roofstock. He was actually sending in materials to like the people over marketing there about, hey, these are some marketing materials I've seen other companies use that I think you could benefit from. Another thing I want to bring up is like, it's fair as a listener, you know, anytime a company is going to come on to be skeptical. But I think a good comparison would be to the way that we have seen people be successful and comfortable with companies like Betterment. So, you know, when I first started investing, I wasn't comfortable just going out there and opening up a Vanguard account and picking out stocks. Like I wanted somebody to be there to kind of help me along the way. And that's where Betterment came in. And I think this might honestly be taken even a step further because not only do you have the support system where they have the preferred lenders, they have the preferred property managers, you're not having to go out and do a ton of groundwork yourself, but it's also actually getting, you know, lower rates into the equation than it would be doing it on your own as far as when you talk about selling that house where, you know, so the standard was like 6% when somebody sells a house that they're going to have to pay. But if you're selling your house on here, you know, maybe it's only two and a half percent. So it gives you that support network that a lot of us have become comfortable with. I mean, you see Mr. Money Mustache talk about using Betterment. It's that same kind of mentality, but now it's just in the real estate world. And more than just helping the new investor, Justin, I think this breaks down a lot of those barriers that people just impose on themselves. Like, I live in California, I can't invest in real estate, or I live in New York City, there's no way I could ever afford a property here. And that was the same case with Emil. There was no way he was going and buying a million plus property in his neighborhood and trying to hit the 1% rule and rent it out. But now he can go pick up properties in Jacksonville, in Memphis, and all these places where the price to rent ratios make a lot more sense. So I think Roofstock does a really good job there too, where you can break down a lot of these location barriers where you might not be able to buy something local, but you can still get some skin in the real estate game. Yeah. And there are also a couple other, like these cool guarantees that also help you just get into the game, get off the sideline and start getting into real estate. A couple of them where if you weren't happy with the purchase after a certain period of time, they would help you sell it back in their marketplace. And then after 90 days from that point, Roofstock would actually just buy your house back if they're not able to sell it. They also have a rent guarantee, which kicks in if you can't rent the property after 45 days. At that point, Roofstock will pay 75% of the market rent. Now, it does require a couple things on your end. For instance, you have to be using a preferred property manager. The home has to be rent ready, and the rent has to be set at a reasonable level. So, I mean, of course, they're going to do some things there to protect themselves. But to me, those are all very fair contingencies. And now it's time for the call to action. And so today's call to action, as you can probably guess, is 
check out to see if long distance real estate investing makes sense for you. You could pick up a book like David Green's book, Long Distance Real Estate Investing, or you can go check out Roofstock's Marketplace where you can sign up for free. Or you could go talk to someone who you know has done this before. We have a lot of people in this community who may have done something similar. So if it's something that you've been on the fence about, but it's something that you'd at least like to consider, then definitely check out one of those options and learn more about it. And if you'd like to reread over some of this information or get some links to Roofstock or Emil's contact information, you can do that over at thefyshow.com slash Emil. That's thefyshow.com slash E-M-I-L. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.